A Mouthful of Air, a poetry podcast with Mark McGuinness. This is Caleb Perkin reading Two Tablespoonfuls. Two tablespoonfuls, she asked the creme for, or it might have been two tablespoons, the former being an official measurement rather than an informal tag or nickname. Tablespoon, tablespoon, tablespoonful, nana, mama. Tablespoons being part of the profusion of 18th century spoons, mustard spoon, Salt spoon, coffee spoon, half spoon, step spoon. She didn't ask for the equivalent 29.6 millilitres. How do you measure that out from the cremulator? Can you ask whether it's more demerara or caster? Just two tablespoons from the interred mass, a sprinkle of grey icing on an earthy chocolate cake. Pot a rose up on top, though, and watch it wither. Not dessert spoons, soup spoons. Both lack gravity. No, she requires the best spoon, best spoon, best spoon. The Sunday roast spoon. Two slices of pale meat, peas unpodded, carrots like worn out suns. The favourite spoon. Not three teaspoonfuls, the ten-a-penny clink-in-the-cutlery-drawer kind used to stir sugar into wan tea. Two tablespoons for serving or eating. Not half a fluid ounce, because this was not fluid, but more flour, self-raising. Were they for a diamond? A pendant to be mounted on a glinting scepter? Or who's to say they wouldn't end up funneled, bottled, nestled in the spice rack between marjoram and nutmeg. It used to be that you carried your own spoon around to every table, your personal spoon, not the stainless steel municipal free-for-all of shared spoons, rows and rows of them, names taking and sloughing off hyphens, grapefruit spoon, slotted spoon, sugar spoon, love spoon. Two tablespoons, the table and the spoon, joined for decades, centuries, by a hyphen, until they became a measure in themselves. Those two full spoons she took, then fired that hyphen, a dart into the bullseye, missile into the sun. Caleb, where did this poem come from? I think 
Like some of the most interesting poems, it kind of, there's the Emily Dickinson phrase, telling it slant. And I think some poems arrive at you slant. And mm-hmm. um, so during NapoRimo last year, as it now is, uh, so in April 22, um, something I've been doing every year for the last few years actually is getting some poets together on Zoom to write a couple of times a week. Mm-hmm. Um, and it well, I suppose it happened during during lockdowns, and I was like, "Well, it'd be really nice for us to connect." So we kind of got together on Zoom and um, had quite a nice group where people would bring prompts. We go to breakout rooms, and it was yeah. And so, so this was written during one of those. Actually, last year, what I decided to do was get a group of poets together who wanted to write into a theme, and so we all came with mm-hmm. this kind of theme or a sense of something we were working on, and um, and I knew I was kind of thinking about two things. I was thinking about toxicity. Um, which is something that's going in my second collection. I'm really thinking about toxicity in, mm-hmm. uh, in well, poison and landscape and behavior. And so all of that. So that was here. And also I, I was brewing this pamphlet um, with Broken Sleep, the coin um, where I was thinking about matriarchs and the ma- matriarchal line. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I can't remember what the prompt was, but I ended up doing some research about um, spoons. <laughs> I got really so interested. I see. <laughs> yeah, so 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 it became this. So that so I, I'm mindful of. Uh, I'm mindful of. I mean, I think it's very unlikely that the relative involved here will listen. But you know, all families have their have their mm-hmm. complex dynamics. Yeah. And actually, what what I think is interesting is when you approach those dynamics from some something else. So in this case, spoons and researching spoons and thinking about that. And it means that actually whatever's going on with those complex dynamics is lurking just behind the poem uh, rather than it being really like um, on the nose. Yeah. And so for me, that's that's how this poem is working. So so I got I, I went off and I researched spoons while we were on this Zoom call, came back with spoon facts and uh, and then wrote <laughs> what what ended up being this kind of experimental kind of essay about spoons but but behind it is all this other stuff going on with the family dynamic and relationships and that kind of thing so there's almost a bit of misdirection going on here yeah You've got these fascinating um taxonomy of spoons i had no idea there were so many and you know we are relatively impoverished these days and our cutlery cutlery drawer um but you know obviously i was thinking about the poem this week knowing that i was talking to you and one of the things i wrote down was spoons are a bit like the weather you know that we're talking about the weather to avoid talking in in britain particularly to avoid talking about something else or as a distraction um (laughs) and it's I i think you're right that family life is very much like that there's very often there's a subtext going on behind what we're ostensibly talking about. Absolutely, yes. And, and my interest also in this subject of the ashes, which is here, you know, this kind of request for two uh, two tablespoonfuls. And, um, and uh, you know, I should say that the, the creme with a capital C is the crematorium. And uh, so where, you know, where bodies are processed in that kind of Victorian process of uh, cremation. Um, and I should say that the cremulator is the machine at the crematorium that the bones go through um, once they've been through, the, the body has been through the uh, cremator oven and the cremulator turns it into the ashes and you know, and sometimes the bits of bone left in there. And I'm, I was kind of, I've always been kind of interested in that, being a, a poet and being a bit morbid. Um, mm-hmm. So when I worked in radio years ago, I made a program about uh, cremated remains, about ashes. 
and mm -hmm. um, and we went to a crematorium and had a tour and kind of talked to the bereavement services manager and um, looked in the drawer under the cremators. He he checked with us first um, at the bones and all of this kind of thing. And so I find that kind of the the physical mechanical processes of that really fascinating. Um, and so in this case, you know, we have this kind of situation where someone's requesting a very specific amount, which was mm -hmm. then was conveyed to me. Uh, and then I was like, well, that has to go in a poem. Like, it's too delicious. I'm, you know, right. being a, you don't, don't tell a poet anything. Um, yeah. be, we're awful. I, and then I was just like, well, and, and but then this was, this was the kind of, I had this, this two tablespoonfuls in my head. And then it was, um, yeah. And then when this kind of prompt arrived to, it kind of led me to, to write about it. I can't remember what your question was now. I'm just like rambling. It it was really, actually, it wasn't a question. It was um, just building on your observation about the fact that often we talk about one thing, particularly in a family, but to avoid talking about something else. And, and that would ah, be very it. typical of family life. And actually, I suppose ashes are so interesting because they're kind of a metaphor for the person and the relationships. And so when I made this radio program, I found that very interesting. And there was some reflection in the treatment of those ashes that was reflecting the the living uh, relationships. Yeah. So for example, um, when people, uh, there was often quite good natured uh, sharing of ashes. So not seeing it as a singular person, but instead breaking up the ashes to, to mm -hmm. go to different places to reflect multiplicity. Yeah. Whereas I feel like um, in this poem, there's a sense of um, wanting my own bit of the ashes you know like mm -hmm. it's kind of I, I need well as I say at one point in the poem there's the favorite spoon you know in the sense of yeah um so that sense of wanting your wanting your slice your share um distinctly and separately which is what again you know this became a stand-in for um yeah well I mean this is the telling it slant thing because the, there's so much you're talking about spoons, but really, you're, there's so much, to me at least, of, of just British family life that goes into this, and opening up to the history. You know, the the, the spoons that we're familiar with, the tablespoons and teaspoons and so on. But then there's this whole spoon hinterland behind it, isn't there? <laughs> That's the kind of the cultural inheritance, I guess, that we've got. They're just that incredibly human thing, spoons as well. I think we've had them for so long and as a, yeah, they're so everyday. And I think it's sometimes a poem can do that to make people really relook at this thing that you're using every day that's around and that they've got this, as you say, like spoon hinterland behind them. <laughs> um, and they have affordances. And um, I love this idea of affordances in objects, like what they kind of, you know, the, the, there's the bit for the hand and there's the bit for the mouth. They're incredibly kind of connected to us. Um, so an affordance, sorry, excuse my ignorance, means what? Yeah, so an affordance, I guess like a chair in terms of human affordances is what it affords us. You know, a chair affords us to sit in it because it has a, a layer, you know, the way that uh -huh. they afford to different to bodies and to different bodies. Yeah. Um, and of course, yeah, so there's a, there's a lovely book called Paraphernalia. Um, I'll, I can't remember who it's by right now, but it's about kind of the, the extraordinary lives of everyday things. And I, I, I really like stuff uh, in my poems, like objects. So spoons, I think, are quite rich. Yeah. Okay, I'll put that link in the show notes. We'll, we'll find mm. it afterwards. So yeah, I mean, to me as a reader, I was thinking 
there's all kinds of resonances of this being very particular about the particular kind of spoon. I guess as well, I mean, you're, you talk about, I mean, this is just my reader response. So you talk about somebody wanting their share and being very precise about that. But again, I don't know anything about the relationship between the people that, that you're talking about, but I, I picked it up a sense of formality and wanting to accord a certain dignity to the person or the relationship and a sense of, is it going too far to pick up love or compassion or affection here? No, not at all. Behind the formality? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. And I think also if you write about family and you write about relationships and you write about tricky relationships, it's really important to try and do that with degree of kindness and humility and i mean david sedaris if you know him the mm-hmm. american autobiographical essay writer one of his things he says i don't think i do that here i take a different stance but he his his thing is you, the, the the teller the storyteller needs to come off worse um in in, in his huh. tellings which i really like so you can't you can't oh, make everyone so nice. else the worst you know always yeah, make yourself yeah, yeah. the hero but i think instead what i've done here is to actually um Kim Adonizio, the American poet, mm-hmm. uh, some great books on poetry craft and process. And um, yeah, talks about a coolness. And I think there's something here in the kind of essay style that I've chosen, mm-hmm. uh, which affords some coolness and a bit of space from what other, otherwise might be, you know, bereavement and cremated remains and family mm-hmm. dynamics. So, so by doing that, I think it kind of gives some space. But I think you're totally right, you know, and I didn't want to, even when a relationship is tricky or... Um, uh, has those naughty aspects it doesn't mean there isn't love there and compassion and a degree mm. of formality so i think it's but i think that i think that's made possible through the coolness that the form and the tone gives it and uh, just thinking again about your comment about the you know the, the fact that we take the spoons for granted and we like we take so many objects for granted and i think maybe a funeral is a moment where we realize we've taken a relationship for granted or you know the fact of a person's existence um, and it really brings us up short against that, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And again, I think there's a case for um, a case for directness and a case for mm-hmm. um, you know bereavement to be given its uh, its howl, as it were. Yeah. In yeah. you know, but also I think it's good to yeah give it give it kind of space to reflect on those things and um, and I suppose here I'm I'm. Yeah, I'm reflecting on different generations in my family too and kind of observing and doing that because, you know, this is my family. So there's something mm-hmm. about stepping back a bit, which is really important. And um, so maybe there's a parallel, you know, stepping back and looking at spoons, stepping back and looking at my family, <laughs> you know, like right. seeing them both afresh a bit. Well, yeah, and you do that in a really interesting way in in the whole pamphlet, The Coin, because it's it's quite unusual. It's about a male poet looking at the matriarchal line in the family, which you know, it struck me as something that doesn't happen all that often. We probably get more poets about fathers and sons. Um, I think maybe female poets are a bit better at this and having poems about mothers and fathers. But, you know, could you say something about that? Yeah, uh, patriarchy. Um, I think <laughs> here's patriarchy again. <laughs> stomps into frame um yes it's a regular guest on the show yes yes it's a regular guest in the world isn't it so so i guess like that was something i was very conscious of and um and i think i think of this as a very queer pamphlet but not necessarily in that it's about um what what uh audiences might 
perceive of or conceive of as queer themes it's it because it's challenging gender norms in the sense mm-hmm. of saying well you know what if what if as a man um as a queer man i feel more connected to female lineages uh, of in my family and the matriarchal line um mm-hmm. as much as i do to the male or fatherly lineage and as yeah. you say i think i think so often um it's deemed that you can only write really if you're a man talking about fathers or a woman talking about mothers because it's like really gender normative and um and actually gender mm-hmm. and the ways we do gender um and the ways that we relate to people are far more complex than that and so so i had this kind of body of work building over years when i was really thinking about um my connection to my mum and my connection to my nans who are no longer around and i wanted this to be a a kind of living monument to my mum who is still around um but as the book uh, kind of recounts she's she's had a couple of uh, treatments for cancer and so it kind of goes into that in the book too mm-hmm. um and to kind of yeah be a be a kind of monument to my nans to my nan and my gran betty and joy who are who feature regularly as well um so I think of it, yeah, it's like quite a queer pamphlet in that regard and to kind of celebrate the possibility that we can take inspiration and from whoever in our families, really. Um, so I think that was what was behind it. And then it, it goes to some other places with some other matriarchs that were around for me growing up as well. Mm-hmm. Um, names have been changed. Uh, <laughs> but um, sure. yeah, so so it is interesting how, and it's interesting you say, that, you know, I suppose that, that women do this better, but that's also because it's often women um, or queer people, non-gender conforming people who have a have to think about gender because yeah. the default gender in the world is like yeah. straight white, cishet mm-hmm. men kind of vibes, you know. And so, so actually then if you're slightly to one side of that, then it's like, oh, well, hang on, what's all this? <laughs> what is all this? Right, you know? right, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think it's good to... And I write quite a lot about, as lots of queer poets do, and gay male poets write about, you know, gender and masculinity comes in quite a lot because it needs it. I think that needs pointing out like, hey, masculinity is a thing, by the way. It's not just the norm. It's a thing that you're doing. Um, But in this case, I'm also saying like, well, what if I want to celebrate my femme qualities? What if I want to celebrate my connection to um, a female energy? You know, I'm a man. That's fine. I'm completely fine with that. But what if what's wrong with it or not what's wrong with more kind of yeah I wanted to kind of celebrate an aspect of having a femme energy that connects me to the matriarchy well that's great and look you know it as a as a straight bloke as well it it worked for me and I found it a really fresh and thought-provoking book that made me obviously start you know because when we read poems about other people's relationships we start to think about our own family and it, it made me start to think about those family connections and relationships and showed me a different way into it. So, you know, I, and I think this is a, maybe an important point to make that queer poetry can be inclusive for everybody. It's not just important as that is about um, queer poets expressing themselves. I think there's something that we can all learn from a new perspective. Yeah, and that's poetry, though, isn't it? You know, I, I find, like, yeah. I was thinking the other day, like, looking at my reading lists and um, what I'm re- reading in fiction and poetry, and the joy of it is this direct line to so many different ways of thinking and so many different experiences and perspectives and um, ideas that I think is wonderful in po- in the poetry world. It's one of the things I absolutely love about it. Um and I suppose, you know, with, with the collection as well, when I was thinking about queer eco-poetry, which is still something, you know, this this pamphlet is kind of 
somewhere a bit different. Whereas the collection, mm -hmm. I was thinking quite a lot about querying eco poetry. And in environmental terms, I think there's ways that LGBT plus people can be leaders in that rather than, mm -hmm. you know, peripheral or marginalized. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, it's always how can we be, how can we shine a light and offer some leadership in some of these areas that we know more about, like gender, because <laughs> mm -hmm. we think about them more. Yeah. So I do, you know, I think that's an amazing thing. And I certainly, that was in, in my mind, I guess, with this. Um, and it's a kind of, it's a more vulnerable, it's a more vulnerable pamphlet than the collection, which has quite a lot of our ideas as well as experiences, if you so. I mean, whereas this I feel like is experiences and there are ideas within there too. Um, I suppose I hadn't thought of it like that before, but yeah. Okay. And so clearly you're drawing on a rich seam of experience in this poem and also it had this very interesting genesis. So how did you get from there to the, the finished form of the poem, which is, um, it's a prose poem, isn't it? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess like I was thinking about this, just flicking through the pamphlet and I really like, I don't know if you do this, when I get to a poetry book of any sort, I, I have a flick through because I want to see what shapes the poems yeah. are. I want to yeah, see, absolutely. You know, yeah. I want to see what the poet's up to. And, um, mm -hmm. and for me, I find it really pleasing when I go through one of my my uh, publications and there's lots of different things going on and it's kind of because each poem needs its own container mm -hmm. and I suppose by the time there's not really any other kind of prose there's a couple of prose poems doing different things there's one which is a bit kind of slashy so it uses slashes um, mm -hmm. which I quite like uh, but then this one appears after quite and there's quite a few short poems as well these short poems with fairly short lines and this one kind of spreads out across the page and onto two pages so it, mm -hmm. it has a kind of because it's a kind of essay, really. That's yeah. how I treated it, was like an mm -hmm. essay. So the first version of it, which I looked up before, um, it really wears the research, because I went onto Wikipedia, I went to some other history sites, and there's mm -hmm. some like, quotes from Wikipedia and all this. So I was thinking there's this, there's this uh, consideration in poetry, how do we integrate and kind of completely meld with the research rather than wearing the research, because uh, that can feel really clunky. Mm-hmm. So, so it's kind of really woven through. Whereas in the first version, there were like direct quotes from, you know, which I think you can do. Um, yeah. So I, I thought that was, yeah. So it kind of had to be really tightened up. And once I had, I did a kind of couple of more glosses on it and um, it got longlisted in the Keith Shelley Prize for Elegy. Mm -hmm. And it was my wild card. Right, <laughs> was, right, right. I put right. in two. <laughs> Actually both, which was lovely, both the poems I submitted were longlisted, neither were shortlisted, boo hiss. Um, but the other one was a kind of environmental poem, um, which I felt was much more kind of, uh, yeah, kind of epic and expansive. And then this one, which I was like, I've no idea what they'll make of this. So I, I chucked it in. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, you know, I always say like, do enter your wild card as well, because it's... Um, yeah, that's a lovely way of thinking about it. Yeah, I do that as well. I've, I've put in okay, okay. These these are the maybe more of a straight bat, and then let's see what they make of this. And and also the one that you wrote last week, and then at the end of editing all the ones you've been working on for ages, edit the one you wrote last week and chuck that in as well. Which is really, yeah. I feel like it's really rogue advice in poetry world because everyone's like, <gasps> no, you have to. But I feel like you're building that muscle and you're building that intuition. So yeah, yeah, like I I don't know. Sometimes just being a bit more cavalier about it is not a bad thing. Great. Okay. So, so how cavalier were you with this then? I mean, you, you say you, it started off as being a bit like an essay with lots of direct quotes, but I mean, was it in prose at that point as well? It actually was. And, uh, you know, there's this question of what is a prose poem. I heard it mm -hmm. articulated recently as it's just prose written by a poet. 
And I thought... (laughs) (laughs) That's probably true, even of the novels, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I reckon. Yeah, and I feel like quite often poem drafts start off without the lineation anyway. Um, mm-hmm. But with this, it, there's something about it that felt like it didn't need line breaks because it was more about what was going on between and through um, the research and the kind of questions that I'm asking. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just kind of worked as as this kind of essay form, I think. And, and because I wanted, to, it felt, it, this is a late entrant into the pamphlet manuscript because I was like, I said to Erin at, um, broken sleep I was like hang on no the, the penultimate one needs to be this now and kind of and he was like understood why I can't remember what the one before was which is a good sign what was in the mm-hmm. manuscript before um, right right and it just it just made absolute sense for it to go as the penultimate poem not the last one and I'm intrigued because you keep you've several times you've described it as an essay and an essay is a nice kind of ambiguous form because on the one hand there's something at least in modern culture, the you know almost authoritative or factual or prosaic about an essay. But obviously, when Montaigne created the essay, he called it essay, you know, as an attempt to try to figure. You know, he wanted to just he was interested in his own mind and to figure out what happens. So it's I feel like there's that nice duality about what you've got here that it and maybe this is the slant thing. It comes on as very factual, doesn't it, and very matter of fact. But actually, there's a, there's an awful lot going on oh yeah it's all you know the behind i mean you know i'm i'm being cheeky in this as as (laughs) as i want to do in many of my poems but with the kind of mustard spoon salt spoon coffee spoon half spoon step spoon those are not real spoons um you know oh really um, oh that's (laughs) delicious (laughs) they're not real spoons oh this is the 18th century i thought that you 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 completely convinced me well done sir well played just kind of I don't know, when you're adopting that kind of cool voice of kind of um, authority in inverted commas, because I've already set up, you know, at the beginning of a poem, you want to kind of set up um, some context. Is one of, so yeah. one of my mentors, uh, Carrie Eto, is, she mm-hmm. was always like, what's the context? You give the context. Yeah. And yeah. You, there's loads of ways you can do that. And so I suppose here, you know, we've got the creme, we've got, and thinking just about the kind of narrative, um, and then Nana, Mama, you know, we've got the kind of, family, maternal relation. Yeah. yeah. And then the half spoon, step spoon. So I want to complicate the kind of relationships a bit. And then as you go through, you know, there's I'm just kind of unsettling the facts um, mm. at the same time as presenting them. Oh, that's a so, nice way of putting it. Yeah, yeah. Unsettling the facts. Yeah. I've never said that before, but that's a good phrase, isn't it? Yeah. But um, And I think you're right, you know, an, an essay, S-A-A, to try, to try out, to explore, yeah. to reflect. And I think um, it's what we're always doing with poems, really, with we're trying to discover and find out and um, yes. collaborate. Hugo Williams has this thing of um, this phrase I really like of collaborating with the language. Like all poetry is research. Ooh, We're collaborating yes. with the language, and I think I, you know. And, and in this, I suppose there's things like the the hyphens become really important. Yeah, and and you set those up, don't you? So you for the listeners, you may not be able to hear this, but you've got first of all, you you read table hyphen spoon. Then tablespoon, all one word, and then tablespoon. And you do quite a lot of this. Yeah, and then and then that that sets up that extraordinary ending. Well, well, exactly. So yeah, I think that's also things when you start to edit, and then you say, okay, so this this hyphen is actually super important. Um, 
And then it presents, as you say, the challenge of how do I read a hyphen, trying to do it with little mm-hmm. pauses and things like that. Yeah, but yeah. because because some some types of spoon did become tablespoonful, that's in the dictionary, mm-hmm. and others did yeah. not. So there is a sense of which things were close enough in our relationships to them over history, which things were close enough they lost the hyphen, and which were not. Um, and which actually was still two words like love spoon, for example, which is a, a Welsh um, yeah. object, the love spoon, the carved love spoon. That is a real one. Yeah, yeah, but they're not they're not hyphenated and they're certainly not a love spoon, all one word. So, But I think these things, you know, and then that becomes a kind of metaphor for the joining of people and relationships and distance. Or and the lineages and lineages, yeah. breakages and joinings. And oh, that's that's wonderful. And as you mentioned, the... The last image of firing, you know, the the hyphen as a dart into the bullseye and missile into the sun is this kind of stubborn rejection of the hyphen, <laughs> about a kind of joining and a quite a forceful kind of togetherness in in it, I suppose. But it's also, I mean, it's an extraordinary pair of images to end on. It's quite surreal. I mean, I guess the rest of it is surreal in in another way. Um, but I really didn't expect the ending. Did you? I mean. Did at what point did you get to that ending? I think I I didn't expect it until I started. I don't know. Sometimes when you're drafting a poem, you start to approach something, and I feel like it's a bit like going on a little. Uh, it can be a bit trippy, almost, or a bit like going slightly on a sort of vision quest <laughs> to not to overstate <laughs> it. But yeah. you do. You get into this kind of full body. It's a very kind of bodily experience of writing and and seeing where it takes you and because mm. this because this hyphen had taken on its own quality and its own materiality at that point i think my my mind then starts to think or starts to kind of picture um what's the hyphen doing and i don't know there's something about like a bullseye and darts um, mm-hmm. probably from growing up as well and playing darts yeah. in the um british legion club and things like that with my nan and um and then that kind of the missile into the sun is this really like aggressive futile <laughs> i don't know it's just yeah yeah it is and but am i being too romantic on saying it, there could be a, a suggestion of transcendence as well about the sun but yeah on the one hand there's there's futility and destruction and a missile and you know the sun being even more powerful and destructive potentially than the the missile but then you know it's you know the sun has quite another lineage in poetry where it's mm. associated with more positive things. Even Philip Larkin wrote a positive poem about the sun. Which one is that? I'm trying to think now. Is it the Orbeid? Uh Solar. Solar. Oh, oh and there's um, Sunspots, the Simon Barraclough book, which is amazing. Have you read that one? Oh, yes, yes. Gorgeous, gorgeous yes. poem. And he has the, um, this is a slight digression, but he has that beautiful um, uh, Jubilate Agno, is it? The, you know, the for I will consider my cat Joffrey, but it's about the sun. For I will consider my star soul. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. it's really, really gorgeous book. Um, so so I think, and also like the sun is another cremator, right? You know, it's another, mm. it's another yeah. kind of oven uh, to fire this uh, hyphen <laughs> into. And um, so it's got, it's got all that potential, I suppose. Um, I, I was just looking back at the original draft and the sun image wasn't there, actually. It came on the second you know the the later draft, uh, and actually looking looking at what I'd done in the the first draft and then the redraft was a lot of taking away, mm-hmm. as it always is. I think is is yeah. you know stripping back, leaving what kind of counts. Okay, Caleb, thank you so much for the reading and the really interesting 
discussion today. Um, and I think that thought of, you know, stripping back to, to what counts is very much on theme for the, the poem um, and bereavement. So maybe we should listen to the poem again in the light of that. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. This is Caleb Perkin reading Two Tablespoonfuls. Two tablespoonfuls, she asked the creme for, or it might have been two tablespoons, the former being an official measurement rather than an informal tag or nickname, tablespoon, tablespoon, tablespoonful, nana, mama, tablespoons being part of the profusion of 18th century spoons, mustard spoon, salt spoon, coffee spoon, half spoon, step spoon. She didn't ask for the equivalent 29.6 millilitres. How do you measure that out from the cremulator? Can you ask whether it's more demerara or caster? Just two tablespoons from the interred mass, a sprinkle of grey icing on an earthy chocolate cake. Pot a rose up on top though and watch it wither. Not dessert spoons, soup spoons. Both lack gravity. No, she requires the best spoon, best spoon, best spoon. The Sunday roast spoon. Two slices of pale meat, peas unpodded, carrots like worn out suns. The favourite spoon. Not three teaspoonfuls, the ten-a-penny clink-in-the-cutlery-drawer kind used to stir sugar into wan tea. Two tablespoons for serving or eating. Not half a fluid ounce, because this was not fluid, but more flour, self-raising. Were they for a diamond? A pendant to be mounted on a glinting scepter? Or who's to say they wouldn't end up funneled, bottled, nestled in the spice rack between marjoram and nutmeg. It used to be that you carried your own spoon around to every table, your personal spoon, not the stainless steel municipal free-for-all of shared spoons, rows and rows of them, names taking and sloughing off hyphens, grapefruit spoon, slotted spoon, sugar spoon, love spoon. Two tablespoons, the table and the spoon, joined for decades, centuries, by a hyphen, until they became a measure in themselves. Those two full spoons she took, then fired that hyphen, a dart into the bullseye, missile into the sun. Caleb Parkin has published in The Guardian, The Rialto, The Poetry Review, and was guest poet on BBC Radio 4's Poetry Please. He won second prize in the National Poetry Competition 2016, first in the Winchester Poetry Prize 2017, and various other shortlists. 
His debut collection, This Fruiting Body, is published by Nine Arches Press, and he's published three pamphlets, Wasted Rainbow with Tall Lighthouse, All the Cancelled Parties, his collected Bristol City Poet Commissions, and most recently The Coin, out in October 2022 with Broken Sleep Books. He tutors for the Poetry Society, Poetry School, Cheltenham Festival's First Story, Arvon, and holds an MSc in Creative Writing for Therapeutic Purposes. From 2023, he is a Practice as Research PhD candidate at the University of Exeter as part of Renew Biodiversity. A Mouthful of Air is a poetry podcast hosted by Mark McGuinness. New episodes are released every other Tuesday. If you enjoy the show and you'd like to help me reach more poetry lovers, you can do this by telling a friend about it or by taking a few seconds to leave a rating or even a brief review on Apple Podcasts. If you would like a full transcript of Every episode sent to you via email, including the poem text, you can sign up for this at amouthfulofair.fm slash subscribe. If you'd like to follow the show on social media, you can find all the links, as well as a full episode archive, at amouthfulofair.fm. The music and soundscapes for the show are created by Javier Whaler. Sound production is by Breaking Waves and visual identity by Irene Hoffman. A Mouthful of Air is produced by the 21st Century Creative with support from Arts Council England via a National Lottery Project grant. Thank you for listening. I'll be back soon with another poem. <laughs>